Welcome to the Pro-Life Team Podcast. My name is Jacob Barr, and in this episode, we are sharing raw footage, raw interview footage of Christy Hamrick that was captured for the Abortion Museum. Okay. Well, I was a reporter. I started off covering crime and punishment, which is a really good place to begin if you're interested in abortion. There's a lot of crime and a need for punishment of the abortionists, not women. Uh, so I was a Pulliam Fellow. I, I worked in Indiana, and then I came to Washington, D.C. With, uh, with CBN News, covering, again, always crime, and crime end up, ends up in politics. Uh, I worked a political campaign for governor and then Focus on the Family hired me when there was only 10 people at FRC to help build that organization. So I have either been a working journalist or talking to journalists on behalf of conservatives and social conservatives from Family Research Council to Focus on the Family to Concern for America, American Genet for Life, now Students for Life of America. And then I've done a lot of uh, private consulting work. So in regards to the issue of abortion, on a personal note, uh, as a journalist, I was always a Christian when I got into journalism. I, I never met another Christian reporter while I was a reporter. So you're really in a mission field. But it, and even though I was already pro-life, it was the stories of friends of mine who had had abortions that showed me what a significant evil and a terrible harm abortion is to women in particular. We know it ends the life of a baby. But the harms of abortion just don't go away. And so it was friends of mine who had abortions and the pain that they suffered that really convinced me that it was an issue worth investing more of my time in. Awesome. Um, when does human life begin? From your experience and yeah, from, from your viewpoint, when does life begin? Well, we don't need my experience on that, although I've had four kids, thanks for asking. <laughs> Uh, science is very clear that life begins. There's a unique set of DNA that occurs when, when sperm and egg unite, and now we have the X and Y or XX and, you know, how that goes. So we understand biblically that we are created unique in the image of God, but scientifically it's just as clear that we are created unique and that we will never be duplicated. So the science of it is, is absolutely obvious, but clearly denied by so much of our culture. Um, tell us about um, students, the, you know, the student's world when it comes to abortion, um, when it comes to, yeah, talk about students and abortion. Sure. Well, um, the rough, I'll start this again. The rough estimates are that a quarter of this generation has been lost to abortion. So this is a group of people who have grown up targeted for abortion, knowing that they've lost family members, living in a culture that basically says that you are expendable. You're expendable depending on the circumstances of your money, of your birth, of your conception, of the characteristics which you have no control over. It really makes them vulnerable and they have to grow up with that vulnerability. And instead of even saying to people um, at school or at work, you know, we want to help you achieve all that you can at school, at work, at home, in your relationships. We say to women in particular the incredibly misogynist message that, you know what, the Victorians were right. 
they said that women could not work and have a family and they're 100% right, you should stay at work. As opposed to the Victorians which said women can't work and have a family so stay at home. So we, there's, women are constantly sold short and then sold an abortion and it's very limited and you see Fortune 500 companies investing in abortion not because they're so enlightened but because it's cheaper than training a new person, it's less expensive with the insurance they can just keep someone chained to their desk for throughout their career without anybody to go home to and then that's a win for corporate America. So it, I find it astounding, um, not just the failure of the feminist movement to stand up for women, but the, um, the deception that has really seeped into the culture in regards to students thinking that, well, I, I can't have a career and a family and I have to choose. Where I, um, I have four children, I have worked my entire life and I'm surrounded by wonderful role models for that but that's the kind of role model that we really need to share with women uh, because the the message of abortion is one of uh, failure you can't do it you'll never be able to do it and so let's just sell you this abortion solve this problem for you but you know the day after you have an abortion you have all the same problems if you're in an abusive relationship you're still in an abusive relationship if you need money for your schooling, you still need money for your schooling. If you need a job, you still need a job. It doesn't change any of your problems. It just subtracts a child from your life. And so again, we're selling women short by not addressing problems of sexual violence or the need for better educational support. We're just telling them, well, we don't care enough about you to help solve your problems, but we're willing to take away that child. So, you know, you can keep working at the things that are bothering you. Can I swap batteries? Oh, yeah. Okay, so the next question was top misconceptions that students often have um, about abortion. I think students and most Americans have one tremendous misconception about abortion, which was that there were limits that were permitted by Roe v. Wade. Through Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, the 1973 cases that together uh, really set up abortion in America, um, it allowed for abortion through all nine months for any reason whatsoever, sometimes with taxpayer funding. And now in a world in which we don't have the Born Alive Infants Protection Act up to and including infanticide, because what that particular bill does is say that you need to offer medical care to, if an infant is born during an abortion. We know children are born during abortion. We have abortion survivors around us. We also have things like the infamous House of Horrors with Dr. Kermit Grinnell. Um, we also have things like Dr. Kermit Gosnell's House of Horrors in Philadelphia in which children were killed after birth and he kept them in his freezer or threw them out in the garbage. So there's lots of evidence that indicates that late-term abortions happen. And you'll see it on television. Um, you'll, you'll see people like Andrea Mitchell argue on television that Roe had all these limits in it. It didn't. That's not only a lie, it is confusing to people because when we're out there talking about the legal framework of abortion in the U.S., you can get an abortion in the U.S. through all nine months of pregnancy. There are places in Colorado and New Mexico and uh, now in Maryland, in the Washington DC area, Washington State and California. So does every abortion vendor uh, end people's lives up to birth? No, 
but that's because of their choice. And the choice is such an abortion buzzword, but it is possible and it is legal. So you go on college campuses and you're talking to, in Ohio right now, for example, with the ballot initiative saying that the current ballot initiative, if it passes, will not allow any limits on abortion at all, even on viable babies. And people are like, well, I don't think that's true. But it is. That is the legal framework of abortion in America. Just because every abortion vendor doesn't do it, and just because it doesn't happen in your state per se, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So that's a huge misconception that people had. Either that Roe allowed for limits, or that you can't get abortion up to the point of infanticide, because you absolutely can. Then there's lots of misinformation about how harmful abortion is. It can expose you to infertility and injury and death. Uh, there's all kinds of complications from it. We see tremendous increases in things like uh, preterm birth, which is one of the after effects sometimes of abortion. That's the number one cause of infant de death in the world, preterm birth. That's a problem. Where all kinds of people are being basically sterilized by the so-called abortion care that they're getting, either because they don't deal with Rh negative status or you're not treating this as some horrific surgical event that you forced on a woman's body and maybe she didn't recover well from it. And like I said, I've had four children. So they monitor you through your pregnancy. You have the baby, they come and check you after. There's a lot of people there to make sure that you go through this experience safely where with abortion, it's a place of a medical abandonment. Uh, and probably one of the more recent and seriously irritating lies that the abortion industry tells is that if we don't have abortion, women won't get life-saving care or care for ectopic pregnancies, which is two lies, but the same, that same lie all rolled up together that somehow we're gonna let women die. Number one, every pro-life law in the country has life of mother exceptions. And if you are trying to save a woman's life, that's not an abortion because an abortion is by its very intent designed to kill one person. That's the goal. Where in a life-saving procedure, you wish you could save two, but you can potentially only save one. And most of the time in life-saving situations, and I've been in difficult pregnancies myself, if a woman is in a life-threatening situation in a pregnancy, they deliver the baby quickly, maybe with a C-section, try to provide any care possible for the baby, but then rush to save the mother. You don't do what is a typical late-term procedure of days and days of ripening the womb and trying to force this uh, forward, taking a needle, putting in the woman's belly, giving the baby a heart attack, and then delivering a dead baby. That's not handled as an emergency. An emergency is generally a C-section. So the language of life of the mother abortions is false because if you're trying to save two lives, your intent is an abortion. Uh, and the re legal reality is false. But ectopic pregnancies is a great other place where you see lots of lies. You don't deal with an ectopic pregnancy with abortion and Planned Parenthood's very own website said that. They only scrubbed it after the Dobbs decision to make that less clear. And I think that's shocking. We have the screenshots at Students for Life if you wanna see what they used to say about it. But a woman's life, uh, if it needs to be saved, will not be saved with an abortion in an ectopic pregnancy. That's not what they're gonna do. But what's so funny about that is, in terms of current lies, the number one means of abortion death right now in America is chemical abortion pills. 
It will not end an ectopic pregnancy because it's not in the womb. It's outside of the womb. It's outside of the uterus. So you force a woman to bleed and you do all these things to disrupt the placenta and nothing is where you think it is. So if you wanted to make sure women didn't die of ectopic pregnancy and you were selling chemical abortion pills, you would bring that woman in and you would do an ultrasound. But in the no-test online distribution of chemical abortion pills, which we've set up with the Biden administration, uh, instead, we're willing to risk women's lives if they have an ectopic pregnancy because they do need care and they don't care enough to check. So those probably are the lies that irritate me the most uh, and then I talk to the reporters about most significantly. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for sharing on those <coughs> misconceptions. Uh, you can play like straighten your blouse a little bit. Sort of, there you go. There, sure. And how's the audio? Is it was it bumping up against the blouse or is it okay? No, oh, perfect. Okay. Just okay. a little prickle, but it's usually in between. Okay. So hopefully my handwriting is legible. Oh, perfect. I read over it, make sure it's none of it's confusing. Okay. So question two. We're still rolling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pro-choice, abortion choice. People often say that. Say so, so that line means or. Pro-choice or abortion oh, choice. Oh, I see. I'm, every time I, that line or. is yeah, because I don't know how a person identifies. Some people say well, pro-lifers have different choices, though, but abortion choice is a bit more clear. It's okay. just not the. Ter I don't know which term people prefer. Sure. Okay. So, abortion, I'm pretty flexible. I talk to reporters. Yeah. I'm evil, so <laughs> as long as I'm not evil, I can deal with it. So. Pro-choice or abortion choice people okay. often say that abortion helps women finish school, right. succeed in their careers, and achieve their dreams. What would you say to a young woman who believes this? I would say that I am wounded that she is so uh, inculcated with misogynist messages that she doesn't understand that she can do more than one thing, that she doesn't have to do one thing at a time, and in fact, there are pro-life people, pro-family people, ready to help you. No woman should have to choose between her child and her education. And our educational system really needs to support them. I don't think most people know that one in four undergrads is pregnant or parenting, and one in three graduate students is pregnant or parenting. Many people are balancing career and family. It's very dismissive of them to, to say that you can't do both. Uh, but also, I think what you really see is a sales pitch. The abortion industry wants to sell fear and then sell abortions. You can't make it. You can't succeed. You'll never be smart enough or strong enough. That is misogyny, pure and simple. But also, it's illegal. There's the Pregnancy Non-Discrimination Act. There are Title IX protections, and the Students for Life were there to help you. So if you're getting those messages, come to us. Maybe what you need is a good lawyer. Awesome. Uh, question three, what are some of the special opportunities and obstacles pro-lifers face when doing on-campus pro-life activities? That's a big one. Um, when you are a pro-life student or a pro-life organization, there are a lot of barriers to entry to get on campus. Uh, they try to put you in free speech jail, like in an area outside of student traffic where you c nobody can find you or get to you. They have um, means where you have to file for permits and ask for permission and go to a student council maybe or go to an administration or student affairs. 
So there's a real gamut to be run in terms of getting the correct position, I mean, sorry, um, there's a real gambit to be run in terms of the correct paperwork and the correct permitting, finding the correct location. Did you notify the police and the school and the city and who knows, you know, what else you need to do. And so each there's what we call it. And there's a heckler's veto, too, in which someone could say, oh, you're bringing a pro-life group to campus. We're going to protest if you come. And they'll be like, oh, it's too dangerous now. So there's a heckler's veto. You're, you're going to be canceled because it's going to be too stressful. If we let one event in, we have to let another event in. Well, whether you have multiple events, that's on you. But the fact that students want to speak and other people want to talk about what's happening is not, a, should not be a barrier to free speech. Uh, and then we also have more and more onerous uh, speech fines in the form of security fees. So that you're going on campus and you have run the gauntlet of the permits and you found the little jail cell that they're going to put you in where they'll let you talk and you don't have, um, you've got maybe some protesters coming in, but they're ready to handle it with security that they'll charge you for. We've had to pay for bomb dogs. Uh, we've had to pay for uh, security fees to schools, to local police. It gets crazy. We just won a lawsuit recently where they charged us more than $5,000 as a security fee, and we got that money back. But those are the kinds of things that we're dealing with fines, permits, um, and the slow walk where they basically hope that you'll graduate or you know lose interest before you ever get permission. So you'll have students that come in maybe at the beginning of a freshman year and say they want a, a pro-life group. And by their senior year, we're still fighting, still trying to get permission for them to be a recognized group with rights on campus to talk about their issue. So that slow walk to nowhere is another barrier to entry that we kind of have to go through. So we keep lawyers busy. Uh, we feel like if you can't use your free speech rights, they don't really exist. Uh, so we have to fight back on all those kinds of obstacles. Wow, follow-up question to that. <clears throat> um, if it's that difficult uh, having pro-life activities on campus, why even bother? Why not just push your pro-life activism off campus and have it in the easier times? Well, we, tend, we want to go, as Students for Life of America and Students for Life Action, we want to be where the students are. And a vast majority of them are on campus. And in that highly indoctrinated space in which up is down and down is up and abortion is good and women are weak, which is very irritating, uh, somebody has to say no. Somebody has to stand up. Somebody has to fight back. It's the principle of the thing. But also, like I said, our groups on campus, we are advocating for pregnant and parenting students. We are trying to be a voice for them. We do a lot, all our groups have to do supportive services. So whether it's a fundraising drive to get diapers for pregnant and parenting schools and students, sorry, uh, you know, anyway, you see what I'm saying. We have to get it for the, for the students or we raise money for scholarships for the students and then we meet the students and get to know them from their campus work. Uh, to provide them some additional funds to stay in school. So we're trying to be where people are. Um, the number one path out of poverty is an education when you look at the socioeconomic details. So we want to help pregnant and parenting students stay in school. We want to help them achieve the kind of trajectory that will help them take care of themselves and their families. That's really the most pro-family thing we can do. But also, somebody really has to confront the hostility 
and the anti-baby bias of campuses. I, it's offensive and it affects a lot of people. Yeah, well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know. Uh, it's amazing how I mean, diapers are a big thing. I mean, yeah. if you have kids, you know that you go through them yeah. like water. It's, yeah, they, it all adds up. It really does. Um, do you have any pro-life stories from your time with Students for Life of America? Well, I spend a good bit of my time talking to legacy and mainstream media, or what Rush Limbaugh would have called the drive-by media. Uh, that is an audience that I'm very much working with. And I, I think the thing to remember there is reporters are people too. You know, it's easy to demonize people and to see them as other, even in the context of the work that we're all doing. But reporters have their own abortion stories and their own family stories. And so I do find that to be a very fulfilling place to advocate for life and for free speech. There are principles at stake here, both journalistic principles and societal principles. And on the whole, journalists are interested in culture building um, activity. And I think too, when you deal with politics, so many people make a very cynical and self-serving and non-principled argument, where we're saying, based on the humanity of people in the womb, we're gonna stand up for them, whether we win or not every time, uh, whether people laugh at us or not, you know, whether we need to call our lawyers or not, we're not gonna be deterred from the human rights issue of our day. And over time, I do think that you can build a respectful and real engagement with people when you are making a principled stand and you do have an answer ready for every reporter, uh, man or woman. You know, slight change on the scripture there. But that's the point, to be ready and willing to make a case. And so we train our students to be ready and willing to make a case on campus. We're not trying to, a lot of organizations are top down. And the head of the organization does all the interviews and gives all the speeches and is the, what you see all the time. We're bottom up. We are training people to go out throughout culture. At whether it's Twitter or Instagram or um, on campus, we're trying to empower people with apologetics and programming to make a difference in their communities, in their schools, and in their jobs, and to know their rights. And when you look at the lawsuits that we're facing, lawsuits like buffer zones, where you can't stand near the door of a pregnancy, uh, you know, of an abortion vendor, or a place of government. You know, it's funny, uh, and I'm not making a comment about the border, but the border was open and there was razor wire around the Capitol. There's a lot to be seen in the juxtaposition of these two pictures where we're shutting people out of government, we're confining them on campuses, we're keeping them away from abortion vendors uh, as though free speech is dangerous, and maybe it is. Maybe it's so powerful that somebody stands up and say, there's another person here uh, and I'm not afraid to stand up for them, that that's so powerful that it is mind-changing and life-changing. And that is a lot of the model of the pro-life movement because you have people trying to save lives every day, one person at a time, because fundamentally abortion happens in the heart of, a, of one person impacting another. Awesome. Uh, 
Question five. What is chemical abortion? Sure. Well, in the United States, there are two pills that are used to end life in the womb, and that's the way it's been since 2000. Uh, Mifeprestex and Mifeprestone, they come together. The first drug, uh, designed literally by someone with roots to the Nazis, uh, starves the child of progesterone. Uh, and so the placenta feeds the baby. The first drug blocks the food to the baby. That's drug number one. Drug number two stimulates contractions and expels the child sometimes alive. You're not necessarily killing the baby. When you're starving the baby, you're, you're being disruptive to the pregnancy and you're destabilizing the pregnancy and then you start contractions. And many women report to us that the baby's born alive. That's very, very, very traumatizing. Britney Spears just wrote very openly in her book about what a horrible experience it was and painful and bloody and terrifying. This is becoming the most common abortion story in America of being alone. And then how much blood is too much blood? You're at your home, you're bleeding, and unless you're a DIY physician, uh, there's no such thing as a DIY abortion. And we've seen a 500% increase in visits to the ER because women are bleeding out and they're scared. So what is astounding about this is chemical abortion exposes women to injury, infertility, death, and abusers. We already see partners, hostile partners, getting a hold of these drugs and giving it to women without their knowledge or consent. Uh, if you don't do a blood test for Rh negative status, you can become sterilized if there's an exchange of blood. Uh, women just have died on the pills just taking them, and who cares about that? Everybody should care about that. And then these kinds of things can trigger injuries to the body and infection and sepsis, uh, which can scar your uterus. And, and I think that's something that people need to understand is that the abortion industry is willing to risk women's lives for the purpose of facilitating a quick sale and of walking away from all of their responsibilities. They're not responsible for follow-up care, for testing, for um, what happens to you after you buy those pills. They've walked away from their responsibilities. I couldn't hear it until you mentioned it, yeah, but I'm sure we can clean it up. Did you hear any of their talking? I heard a little bit, but I think I think I think her, her voice was plenty loud. So I don't think yeah. it was. As yeah, you spoke loud enough that might have covered it. Is <laughs> um, it 500% increase? Yeah. I can send you all the data points if you That's need it. Cool. It's crazy. I mean, honestly, it because. You know, and that's funny, I had bleeding in my pregnancy. I'm not a doctor, I went to journalism school. So you're bleeding. How much blood is too much blood? You don't know, you just don't know. So of course, you go to the doctor and you call, you're freaked out. And I wasn't trying to have a miscarriage. And you know, it's just, it's terrifying. And that chemical abortion just seems like it, it just furthers the, it, it escalates the, the negatives yeah. And just pushes women into a more misogynistic little chokehold there because yeah. they, they, it says this isn't something that you get professional help on. They're just mailing it to you. They're mailing it in. Right. And then you have to administer it yourself. So you're, you're not, you're abandoned by your family. You're abandoned by your boyfriend. Well, now you're abandoned by your doctor. Right. And you have to have an abortion all by yourself. Right. And if you're RH negative, yeah. you probably just sterilized yourself. 
you got to have you got like 24 hours to get a rogam shot i had a ton of them i'm rh negative 15% of the population is rh negative it's not uncommon so if there's an exchange of blood in birth miscarriage or abortion uh, antibodies form in your body which will attack a future pregnancy and you've got about 24 hours to neutralize those antibodies i'm not a doctor so i don't know why there's not a longer window but there isn't so I was even in a fender bender at seven months pregnant with one of my children, and they gave me the shots as a precaution in case my placenta bled. It's crazy. So you, so the abortion industry says, well, we don't want to stock Rogam and make it part of this uh, start of the part of the um, standard of care. Sorry, because number one, the law doesn't make us. Because number two, um, maybe they don't need it early. We don't know. Nobody's tested, but maybe. And number three, they said, uh, because maybe women want to be sterilized, which, <laughs> not kidding. Wow. Because they said, but the, the only way you could want to be sterilized is if somebody told you, if you take this and you're RH negative and you don't get this shot, you might never have a child again. And you see all these women after an abortion, Christy Teigen. Christy no, Teigen, um, uh, right, having to have all these blood transfusions because she was losing a baby, right. <laughs> What's the, um, I mean, this is more off topic, well, well they're yeah, kind of, they're vacuuming the hallway, so we have like, I, we yeah, I, thought, I thought she might have just left the door open and she was vacuuming, no, no, right. yeah. and I think you need both. We've done a lot of interesting polling, and when something is illegal, people do tend to think, well, that's probably a bad idea. So as we go state by state to rebuild a legal structure for a culture of life, I think that will have an impact. That, well, that's something we shouldn't do. That's against the law. But hand in glove with that, you have to increase the service and the level of love and support. Uh, at the same time, we have Standing With You, which is a program to connect people to services, community, government, and otherwise at the local, state, and federal levels, because you're going to need that. Um, from our own experience, nothing really can be substituted for a loving person right there in that moment. The loving person at the pregnancy care center, the Students for Life group leader who is a, a loving friend. I mean, we have so many stories of that where someone gets pregnant and seeks out a Students for Life uh, friend, you know, on campus to tell their troubles to, knowing that the first word out of their mouths will be, that's great, I'm, I'm so glad you're pregnant. How can I help? Rather than, well, you gotta get rid of that. And that is, I, I think, part of the responsibility that we all have through our church, through our communities, through our pregnancy care centers, to be frontline loving and not distantly loving. Because if you're really scared and you really do feel alone, um, you're looking for somebody who's there. And if you don't feel support from your partner or your family, then hopefully it's from your friends and community. So I think that's a responsibility we all have. But I would argue one step further that we have a responsibility, each, every one of us, to try to exhibit a loving family and a caring uh, social framework. Our culture demonizes marriage and family. It says that career is better than kids. Um, and you really see a powerful eugenics mo movement that has poisoned our culture. And we see all these articles, uh, Elon Musk is quite eloquent about the contracting culture and that society is going to end, you know, not with a boom from a bomb, but from a whimper in diapers, in adult diapers. That's one of his lines. 
and we do see contracting populations. But why is that? It's because we are encouraged to give up on parenting, on, on motherhood, and we're really encouraged to put ourselves first and to act in fear when someone becomes pregnant. So just, I really believe personally that our, our personal responsibility to be loving family members uh, and then to take that love and let it ripple out into our communities and into our work is really important because they will know your Christians by your love and they will see the love and hopefully know where to come for loving support, but not if we're quiet about it. But it is uncomfortable to go outside of abortion vendors or on campus or all kinds of places where we're not welcome. So what, you know, if we can't be afraid to stand up for the person who has no voice, and frankly that often includes a child's mother who doesn't think that anybody's going to fight for them, so they may as well give up, and that's a problem. Awesome. All right, well, I think that's a wrap. Thank Oh, take it, seal it, seal it for thy cure.